0: Welcome to the Civil Liberties podcast, a podcast focused on civil liberties at Stanford and beyond. I'm Avi.
1: And I'm Nicole. Today, we are honored and excited to share our first podcast episode with a Stanford faculty member, Professor Michelle Dauber from the Law School.
0: Professor Dauber shared some extremely powerful and insightful comments on Stanford-specific issues, as well as topics on a national scale.
1: Our conversation was actually too long to fit in one episode, so after finishing this one up, we suggest giving part two a listen, where Professor Dauber dives deeper into the culture of Greek life and the national movement toward its abolition.
0: And before we begin, we'd like to note that this episode involves descriptions of violence, sexual violence, rape, drugs, and alcohol use. We share this to empower our audience to make a decision regarding whether or not to listen to this episode. If you need support, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at one 800 656 Four six seven three.
1: With that in mind, we'll now hear from Catherine and Lucy from the ACLU Media Committee to learn more about Professor Dauber's journey and some other helpful context. We hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening.
2: On today's episode, we're speaking with Stanford Law School professor Michelle Dauber. In 2018, Dauber received national attention by leading a recall campaign against former California judge Aaron Persky. The campaign was motivated by Persky's lenient sentencing of Brock Turner, a former Stanford student who assaulted Chanel Miller. In a historic decision, Persky was recalled by California voters with over 60% of the vote. The first time a California judge had been recalled in over 80 years. Throughout Dauber's career, she has continually challenged the Stanford administration to create a safer environment on campus. In 2011, Professor Dauber became a co chair of Stanford's Board on Judicial Affairs, helping to lead the process to revise campus sexual assault policies. Additionally, she has been involved in political activism through her nonprofit Enough is Enough Voter Project which aims to make violence against women a voting issue. You can read more at enoughisenoughvoter.org. Dauber is known for her fearless and bold attitude, a strategy she employs to bring about change in the university, in actions such as publicly shaming the university on her Twitter. In response to criticism she received for leading the Persky recall campaign, Dauber said to the San Jose Mercury Times, I welcome their hate. I read it as a sign we're being effective.
3: In our conversation with Professor Dauber, she introduced us to an interesting thought experiment. Imagine 40% of students at Stanford were non-fatally stabbed during their undergraduate experience. Every party ends in stabbings and the perpetrators and victims often fit a predictable profile, a male fraternity member or athlete and an unconscious or intoxicated undergraduate woman. Some of these stabbings require stitches or trips to the hospital, but most do not. Fear about being stabbed is widespread, so Stanford implements trainings on how to stop stabbing. However, these stabbings continue at the same rate. The university praises itself for spending large amounts of money on trainings and private counselors for stabbing victims, but for decades, Stanford Hospital does not provide any treatment for stabbing victims. The police never arrest any student stabbers, and the Office of Judicial Affairs has only expelled one stabber in the history of Stanford. Victims are asked whether it was a deep wound or like a scratch with a barbecue skewer. Why were they drunk or passed out? They've been stabbed before, how could they let this happen again? Why not wear a thicker coat? If this were happening, people would be hysterical. There's no doubt that the high probability of being stabbed, even non-fatally, would deter parents from sending their children to school. And there's no conceivable situation in which a student who had stabbed others would be allowed on campus. According to Dauber, that is exactly what is happening here, but the reality of sexual violence on campuses is worse. Rape is a deeply traumatic and destructive felony, yet its effects and prevalence are frequently underestimated. With this experiment in mind, we invite you to listen to the following segment and open yourself to challenging the normalization of rape on our campus.
0: Okay, cool, let's get started. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Professor Dauber, it's really great to have you. We're super excited to hear your thoughts on some campus issues as well as some broader stuff that's happening nationally. So I wanted to start right here at Stanford with some questions that our students had about the alcohol policy. Um, as I'm sure you're aware recently, students protested Stanford's revised alcohol policy because it has a lack of sort of a explicit acknowledgement that victims of sexual assault would be protected. Um, As of now, just to provide some context, the policy states that in all instances of drug and alcohol use must be reported, except for in instances of sexual violence. I I know you've noted in social media that you're unhappy with this change in policy. So we're wondering that, you know, Stanford has revised this policy to protect against some cases of sexual violence, but as an outspoken advocate for Title IX rights and someone who's dedicated their life to fight against sexual assault, um, we wanted to get your thoughts on whether that revision of the policy seemed adequate.
4: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And as to whether the policy is now adequately protective of sexual violence victims, I would say that depends entirely on how it is implemented. So the language of the policy is now adequate, but that is only because I and um, some former students from my class, one in five, and also other students fought for weeks to make it adequate. Um, Now the question is whether the implementation will be consistent with the language of the policy. But if I may, uh, let me back up for a minute and just go over the general issue of alcohol and sexual assault. At Stanford, 40% of female identifying students and a similar number of trans students experience sexual violence during their four years on campus. That's a very high number. And it signifies that we have epidemic levels of violence on campus. Meanwhile, reporting is very low, somewhere in the range of 3%, lower than many of our peer schools. And that to me signifies a lack of trust in university processes. So anything that further damages trust or creates fear of consequences or victim blaming is dangerous. It means that students who are raped won't report, and that means that rapists are left on campus to strike again. Many of those victims uh, of sexual assault were consuming alcohol at the time they were victimized, and that's because rapists target drunk victims and often use alcohol as a weapon to weaken their victim's ability to resist. In my opinion, that statistical connection between alcohol consumption and rape has caused the Stanford administration to do things that look like blaming intoxicated victims, whatever their intent might be. There has been a persistent false causal inference drawn by administrators at Stanford that alcohol causes rape. And no matter how much I try to get them to break that connection, they return to it um, as a kind of a fixed idea. Sexual assault is often mentioned in their alcohol reports, for example. It's used as both an explanation for the conduct of assailants, Um, maybe they were drunk and didn't know what they were doing, and it's used as a reason that victims didn't take appropriate care of themselves and therefore got raped. None of that is true, all of it is victim blaming, and in a very real way, these views protect rapists and keep them on campus. So when I looked at the new alcohol policy, I looked at it with an eye toward its impact on victims' willingness to report and seek help. And as it was um, initially put forward, the policy exempted victims only from discipline, but not from reporting. And uh, so called education. It had no protection for victims who delayed reporting their assault. But it did protect rapists by offering them mitigated punishment if they called 911 to report that their victim was intoxicated. So, sort of taken as a whole, the policy was extremely problematic. And my concern is that it would actively discourage reporting. And by the way, these weren't mistakes, they were considered choices by the administration. And when I asked for changes, they pushed back hard. So just to give you an example, the way the policy was initially written, if a freshman victim called their RA and reported being raped while intoxicated, the RA would have been required to report not just the rape, but also the underage drinking or drug use by the victim. The victim would then be sent to substance abuse counseling as a result of reporting their own rape. That drinking or drug offense would then be on their record if they were subsequently caught drinking or smoking weed, um, which many rape victims might do in order to medicate the horror of their trauma. That's very common. So my first priority in modifying this policy was to get rid of that mandatory reporting or any consequences for substance abuse when a victim reports an assault. Um, And the fact that that was a hard fight tells you a lot about this administration's view of rape and um, rape victims. So my second priority in dealing with the alcohol policy was to ensure that um, the empirical evidence regarding delayed reporting was considered because most victims take a long time to report. And so I demanded that anyone who was reported for underage alcohol or drug consumption should have that report and any consequences taken off their record if they subsequently reported that their substance use was connected to a sexual assault. And the university was extremely resistant to this um, request. And I think this is based um, on a rape myth uh, that women lie about rape. I think that the university resisted making the amnesty for rape victims retroactive, Um, if they reported later on the theory that students who had been penalized for alcohol use would use a a false claim of rape as a kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And that um, was completely unacceptable to me, and I just refused to accept that and continued to insist that it be changed, and ultimately it was changed. And then um, my third priority in dealing with the alcohol policy was to remove the Good Samaritan provisions, that allowed rapists to receive mitigated punishment if they reported that their victims were intoxicated. Um, The fact that this uh, kind of thing was even considered, that it made it into the policy and that it was in fact published on the website is just highly disturbing. And it shows in my view how little Stanford actually cares about um, ridding the campus of rapists and abusers. Um, That that part of the policy uh, had to go and it did go, but it took a big fight um, on my part. So, um, you know, after weeks of arguing and activism, um, finally Stanford relented and they fixed the policy. However, the damage was done. The low levels of trust that survivors feel towards Stanford uh, cratered to rock bottom uh, in my judgment um, as a result of this uh, policy and no amount of PR by Stanford is going to put that back together again. And I repeatedly told them that the fact that we were even having to argue with them about this was doing damage. And um, you know, I had a number of conversations with administrators in which I said, you know, this conversation you know, is, is happening in public and it's doing damage right now. And it just didn't seem to matter. Um, when I approached them, I was very worried about reporting and I asked them to just quietly fix this. Um, I appealed directly to Persistrel, but you know, um, people get very attached to their own ideas. Um, they think that it's the best baby because it's their baby. And that makes things very hard to unwind, especially when there's so much, conscious and unconscious bias against women and survivors um, that is baked in at Stanford already. So, in my view, um, even though we ended up with a policy on paper that is acceptable, uh, Stanford did tremendous damage um, in the process of uh, putting forth this alcohol policy.
0: So it sounds like the revisions to the alcohol policy were sort of hard won by student activists, faculty activists, folks like yourself. Um, So one thing I think a lot of students would be interested to hear about is how do you believe that student activists, you know, like those who help change the alcohol policy, like those in SV free right now, um, can continue putting pressure on the university to change these sort of harmful or misguided policies?
4: Well, let me me first touch on how I think the university should have behaved. I think that the right response from the university would have been for them to consult with faculty and student advocates before they released the policy um, to consult with us about the potential impact on survivors rather than just dumping the policy on the website and then forcing me and students to try to um, get post hoc edits. And the same thing was true with their Title IX and SHARE procedures. That was months of fighting behind the scenes, first privately and then publicly to try to fix the mistakes. And this is kind of a self-inflicted wound that we've seen by Stanford over and over in the area of sexual violence. If they would just send me a draft, and send the student advocates a draft of the policy, whatever it is, before releasing it to the public, and then take the feedback seriously, then these conversations could be carried out privately rather than publicly. But Stanford has behaved um, consistently in a very high-handed manner, in my opinion, with survivors and advocates, and this is how they have received black eye after black eye after black eye in the media, and it is all self-inflicted. They should uh, stop punching themselves in the face, but there are egos in play, um, perhaps, that prevent that from happening. There's a fair amount of resentment, I would guess, by Stanford toward me and toward anti-rape activists. Um, I definitely feel that I've experienced retaliation as a result of my Title IX advocacy over the years. So it's hard for them to engage in a thoughtful process um, that would you know, truly be inclusive. Um, you know, to be honest, even if they don't respect me or they don't respect advocates' viewpoints, uh, and I mean clearly they don't, uh, you would think that self-interest alone would lead the university to seek out advocate reactions so that they can gauge whether um, they want to make modifications and avoid the public conflict and the bad PR, but that never seems to happen, and I think it's arrogance, and I, I think it's also some misogyny. So um, you know Stanford has had 50 years of anti-rape activism on campus. They know that they have a problem. If they wanted to get serious about it there are steps that they could take like getting rid of Greek life um, and spending money on empirically validated prevention education. They haven't really done um, either of these things even though some other schools have. So when you ask how do I think that student activists can continue putting pressure on the university my first response to that would be you know that's really up to students and I don't direct students actions but I do have some observations that might be relevant here based on my 20 years of experience. Um, Stanford is usually able to co-opt and slow down any activism by putting students on committees and task forces and and then they demand confidentiality um, out of every member of the committee which has the effect of silencing Uh, student voices. So no real changes are ever made, the rape rate stays high, the reporting rate continues to crater, trust goes to the basement, but the students on the committee are silenced, and maybe they feel a little special because they were picked for a fancy task force, and they feel that the university is, quote, listening to them, or they're in a conversation, and that works, in my observation, usually until senior year when students realize that they got a big bag of nothing and then the betrayal trauma sets in. Um, but then they graduate and Stanford, you know, does rinse, repeat, and nothing changes. So one thing that will help students as resource um, resources is to be educated on the subject of campus sexual violence. And that's why I teach um, a special class on this, one in five which is FemGen 143, a small seminar that's open to undergrads, um, which is an in-depth study of the issue um, of campus sexual violence, including law, policy, and politics. And once the students have taken this class, they can more effectively advocate for their perspective based on science, research, and law. Um, This class also meets two different ways requirements, and depending on uh, when this episode airs, there could still be spots, but it's almost full for this year. Um, you know, the, the tactics that Stanford uses to silence student protest um, are pretty common tactics that large organizations use to defeat social movements. And in the case of Stanford, we're talking about very young students, 18, 19 years old, up against a multi-billion dollar corporate behemoth. So it's not a level playing field. The university has a lot of free speech restrictions that prevent protest and activism, and it's very difficult for students to go up against that kind of a machine. So for that dynamic to change, the university, um, I think, should take a hard look at the Office of General Counsel. I think that they have played, that office, the Office of General Counsel has played a very problematic role in a lot of the Title IX issues Um, And I think it's a long past time for the president to take a look at that office and ask whether Stanford is really being well served by the advice they're getting. Just to segue a little bit. So a couple
1: weeks ago, you posted about the university removing Stanford protects rapist signs at EBGR. Um, And I guess just connecting back to everything that we've been touching on, as someone who has been at the university for 20 years, is this surprising to you in any way? No. In the Res Ed removes Student Posters article, the reporters offer a quote from you. If Stanford spent half the time trying to stop rapists that it spends trying to stop criticisms of Stanford, the campus would be a lot safer. The reporter also articulates that you believe that the free speech policy on campus are, quote, difficult to find and interpret. Does Stanford try
4: to silence activist voices on campus? Well, first of all, I wasn't surprised that they removed the posters. Stanford is one of the most restrictive colleges uh, that I'm aware of in terms of free speech and expression and protest. A lot of their rules probably violate state law on protected speech. Some of their rules are absurd, like they limit the size of posters. Um, they limit who can have a banner. They require pre-approval of, you know, content of banners. Um, their policies, Uh, about these things are kind of a confusing hash of poorly drafted rules that are scattered around the website. And there are mixed messages uh, with one part of the website guaranteeing student free speech and other parts restricting it. A lot of these restrictions are about where and how and when students can protest. And they're just not found on other campuses like having a free speech zone in White Plaza students often inadvertently break the rules because they don't even know what they are and when my sexual violence class um, was starting out the university um, accused me of allowing students to uh, quote engage in activism when they were doing public education campaigns about campus rape um, for example i had a student a first gen latino student rising sophomore who put really innocuous five and a half by eight um, flyers about just generic campus rape statistics um, uh, out. He was distributing these flyers and he put them on the uh, windshields of cars during student drop off during NSO. And it turns out that there's a rule somewhere on the website against putting leaflets on car windshields, even if it's political speech. And the TA had informed the student that there might be rules he should look into, but he felt that it would be fine given the very limited nature of his flyer and what he was doing. So he was basically terrorized by Res Ed following him around on a golf cart, and he had a panic attack and ran into my office believing that he was about to be expelled for putting these flyers on parent windshields um, that said something like, one in five college students is raped, or you know, it was really you know, benign. Um, It was crazy, Um, and there's another rule that bans any form of protest in the main quad. There's a free speech zone in White Plaza, but you can only have amplified sound with a permit between 12 and 1. You can't have a banner. Your posters can only be so big. It's just sort of this confusing welter of rules that are almost purposefully vague, so students can't really tell what they can, can and can't do, and therefore they're subject to um, potentially being disciplined for some rule that they didn't even know about. Um, so as a result of these experiences, every year my class um, uh, TA collects all the policies that they can find restricting protests and speech on campus, but I'm never sure that we found all the rules because of the you know, sort of terrible way they're disorganized. Um, And even if we found all of them, I don't really know how Stanford will interpret them. And so I always um, urge students to do their own research and ensure that any of their projects fully comply with university policies, even though I can't tell them uh, what exactly all the policies are, which is how I know um, that they're hard to find and hard to comply with. Um, That really... Put students on the back foot if they want to do anything like put up posters in EVGR because they really can't tell whether that's allowed um, or what might happen to them.
1: Yeah and so beyond kind of like like you're saying you're encouraging students to do their research to make sure that you know they can't be reprimanded um, by their efforts to fight all of this um, based on your past experiences how would you suggest then for students to fight back in a way that is most effective? Or kind of like, what
4: methods have you noticed have been um, you know, the best at actually causing change at Stanford? That's a great question. I think that um, getting their concerns into an arena that is not controlled by Stanford, such as local government, is a really good idea. I've been very successful with the County Board of Supervisors in Santa Clara County, which is how we got a state-of-the-art facility for rape kits Um, built at Stanford Hospital, Um, or going to the press um, and getting the facts out. This is another way um, that students can get improvements at Stanford. Uh, In my judgment, meetings do not work, committees do not work, local protests on campus don't work unless they get media coverage. Um, Most importantly, Um, I think for students, you know, you have to be prepared for a grueling, long fight over every single thing, no matter how small, because Stanford is prepared to go to a scorched earth uh, fight and stay there for a very long time, and they're well-resourced and well-able to withstand um, any sort of minor protest students might do. Most changes, in my experience, take years, and just to give you one example, um, getting a 9 by 12 plaque with a quote from Chanel Miller on it uh, that Stanford had promised in writing um, to deliver as part of a settlement agreement with her. Um, They reneged on that agreement. I mean, and that's pretty incredible um, backing out on a written settlement agreement, by the way, that took five years and massive wall to wall media coverage and a resolution um, by the faculty Senate. So students need to be prepared for a long fight, one that will probably extend well beyond uh, your time here as a student. Thank you
1: so much for your insights on Stanford. I think it's really powerful to hear someone's voice, um, someone who's been involved for so, so long. And again, we're, most of us are at the start of our time here. So. I think your insights are really, really incredible. But before we let you go, we wanted to ask one question about a national issue that's been in you know, the spotlight recently and throughout history, the pattern of laws restricting abortion rights in the United States, which has prompted a speculation about attempts to overturn Roe v. Wade. So with the conservative majority in the Supreme Court, do you think that this will happen?
4: Yeah, thank you for that question. Abortion rights as we have known them since 1973 will end. The Supreme Court may replace Roe with another framework pushing the date earlier, such as um, the supposed heartbeat, or it may allow the states to ban the procedure outright. Whatever they do, it will be bad for the health of pregnant people. Many of these restrictions will directly impact survivors of sexual assault and abuse. For example, the Texas law Um, that was recently passed has no exception for rape and incest victims. Rape and child abuse victims will have to give birth to their rapist baby. And that is going to become the norm, and it shocks the conscience. Um, The solutions left to us are those provided by the political system. We have to vote out the senators who refuse to curb the power of the court and vote in a Senate that represents women and survivors. We have to take power through democratic elections, and that is why voting rights has to be the first priority. Then we need real court reform, including uh, term limits, as well as court expansion in both the Supreme Court and lower courts. We, as a society, need to stop worshipping the courts, um, and that might be another episode. Um, But what I mean by that is that for nearly all our history, the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, was captured entirely by the ruling oligarchy, and in particular, by the slavocracy that controlled this country. The courts were the enemy of the people. They blocked unions. They blocked worker protections. They protected slavery, protected Jim Crow, blocked the formation of the modern welfare state, even as people starved in the streets during the Great Depression. They were slaveholders, uh, wealthy, powerful, white male elites. And the only time that that really changed was in the period immediately after Franklin Roosevelt, who used his enormous electoral majorities um, to successfully threaten the Supreme Court. People say the court packing plan failed, but actually it didn't fail, it worked. The court moderated its own decisions under threat and the Social Security Act was allowed to survive. Um, And thereafter, Uh, Roosevelt packed the courts over his next three terms so the federal courts at every level were solidly comprised of new dealers. The Roosevelt court then became uh, later what became known as the Warren Brennan court and for a brief shining moment really just a split second in U.S. history the court tossed a few breadcrumbs to the poor and to marginalized groups. The Roosevelt court and the Warren court also did some bad stuff like Japanese internment and slow walking integration of the public schools that lasted for generations. But somehow out of all that mediocrity, Democrats have latched on to the false idea that judges and courts are the bulwark of protection for civil rights. When for 200 years, they've really been the opposite. They, The Democrats have latched on to the aberrant uh, at anti-democratic Supreme Court, the Court of Dred Scott and Korematsu and Brown as the saviors of democracy, and you know, to me, this is just madness. And one reason for this madness is that lawyers are the leaders of the political class in our country, and law is a guild in which lawyers protect each other, protect judges, and protect the courts, which are also comprised entirely of lawyers. So law itself, and I'm speaking as a law professor, is an inherently conservative institution with a small c, not referring to political party here. That means it is the least likely place from which social change might ever come. Social change comes from social movements, from protests, and from democratic elections, not from lawyers and not from courts. So we have to quit worshiping the court before we can think about how we're going to solve uh, the problem of Roe versus Wade, or abortion rights, or Black Lives Matter, or any of these you know, burning social problems.
0: Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Dobber. That's a very interesting uh, answer to the question. And that history of the courts, I think, is something a lot of students, and I know I personally didn't appreciate. So we might have to have you on in the future to discuss that further, but... For now, um, we'll have to let you go. But thank you so, so much for taking the time. I think um, we and our listeners will really appreciate your insights and your expertise.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. And a special shout out to Arnav for composing all the music that we used in this episode. And please make sure to tune in to the rest of our conversation with Professor Dauber in our part two episode.